Hey, 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 everyone. This is your girl, Kyrishi Wigginton, in the house again with a, a New Year's Eve episode for Too Much Woman for This World, because we are all of those things. Fat, fabulous, fine, fresh, all the Fs in the house. We have a special guest. This is my sister friend. Y'all don't understand. I've known her since I was like, ooh, like early 20s. Um, we, we grew up in the same village, uh, uh, same rites of passage organization. And I haven't talked to her in so long. And this is going to be such a dynamic conversation. I can't wait. Um, Shamara, introduce yourself to the people. Tell them who you are, what you do. I am Shamara Jokwachi. I'm a professor at Georgia State in Gender, Women's, and Sexuality Studies. Um, I'm an LA girl to the heart, Crenshaw 48th forever. Um, but I am now relocated to Atlanta. So, you know, a little Southern. I'll be a peach for a second. Um, for a little bit. For a little bit. My research and just my life's work is a commitment to Black girls, Black women, Black femmes, um, telling their stories, hearing their stories, listening to their stories. I grew up, I am the first generation in my family born outside of the Jim Crow South on my mom's side and the first generation born in the U.S. on my dad's side. So my mom is from Arkansas, my father is from Ghana, West Africa. And, you know, I, I am from griots my great grandmother who on my mom's side was the story keeper for our family and okay. she, she kept the stories um in our family from folks that were enslaved in the great migration so she would tell all kinds of stories um as a kid and she would recite them over and over unfortunately she died when i was about five um so there i got fragments of it but some of my older cousins have the better stories about our family's history um, from some of it from Africa through slavery to, to California. And then on my dad's side, my grandfather, his father was a griot. He told, he was the story keeper on that side. So I'm, and I was the favorite great grandchild of my great grandmother and the favorite grandchild of my grandfather. Hopefully nobody will be in my inbox or my <laughs> later. Oh, you now, you know what? When you're the favorite, it's just a known thing. Like, right. I don't fight it no more. Like that, Right. At this point, I'm like, please come see me. But yeah, so I get it honestly. Right. What you going to do? I get it honestly, storytelling. So I just, you know, my commitment is to telling those stories and, and really wanting to hear from people whose stories often don't get told, whose mm -hmm. stories don't often get a lot of space. Mm -hmm. So it's important for me to make sure that I hold on to and really do good work, either through performance, either through mm -hmm. on the page, on stage, um, in poetry, to really tell those stories. So that's that's me. I love that. Uh, I have so many questions. When you start talking, I was like, oh, ooh, ooh. Um, okay, so first you said Arkansas. What part of Arkansas? Crossing Arkansas. So like little teeny tiny town. Um, we fly in, so when we go home, now I'm close enough to drive, but when we, when my mom and I, my aunts were in California, we were flying to Monroe, Louisiana, and I then drive an hour. So we're closer to the Louisiana border. Um, so it, it's so crazy the the way that people are connected. Um, so my family is from Bradley, which is like yes, uh, I know Bradley. <laughs> <laughs> Bradley. Well, yeah. my grandmother actually lives right now in Lafayette, which is like yep. right next to Bradley, right? Right. Um, 
but yeah, like up on, they call it the hill. Mm-hmm. Um, and my, that's where my family, that, <laughs> that's where they're from. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm the, uh, the second generation born out of um, the Jim Crow South. It, and it, it's interesting, my, uh, I remember with my great uncle um, that he, you know, when they talk about him, they um, talk about like him still being, like having like unease with white, with white folks. Mm-hmm. because of how he grew up right so whew, a lot of connections all right so when you uh, my next question is when you say fems explain that to the people like when you made that delineation and the people do that all the time but i i want you to explain it because i think uh what happens is that like jargon is out there mm-hmm. yeah. um but it's not always tangible for everybody so like what yeah. my common listeners what does that mean yeah so anybody that identifies as feminine regardless of their gender presentation um just who they know themselves internally to be if they know themselves to be feminine that's what i mean so it doesn't necessarily you know boil down to sex and gender it's just how people see themselves and how they they show up what energy they're moving with through the world exactly okay and really they're affirming that energy too like folks that claim feminine energy Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i love that um thank you for that uh it, I think it's so powerful that you're you have um, such a clear understanding of your lineage. Um, that is like that is so especially for you to have both sides to have the African side. And you said your great grandmother knew the stories from Africa coming forward, right? So she, it's it's more so like little chunks, little pieces of stories um, mixed in with like how we got to where we were in mm-hmm. Arkansas. So she has kind of what people would do so she wouldn't name like she wouldn't know the place but she would talk about the things that folks did and how they mm-hmm. lived um in africa mm-hmm. no have, have you ever read um what is it called by Tanahasi coates um his latest one the water the, um, the water dancer have you ever read I have, it's on my list it's on my list. I want you to read it okay. and then, uh, then talk, call me because okay. I feel like there are things that will be reminiscent for you when you when you read it. Um, okay. It's so, you know, when we think about like the, the travesty of like slavery and colonization, like the cultural memory that is gone, like, mm-hmm. you know, that we just don't know those pieces. So many of us just don't know. Um, and it's always, it's almost like a... You know, I think like uh, you, you have kids who have, who are adopted and um, and they don't, you know, there's always a piece that they can't find their their birth parents. There's always like the questions and the emptiness and I don't belong and who am I? And I feel like that's how we function as as African Americans specifically, as a people. Um, um, and I don't know if folks from the islands or other parts of the diaspora have the same kind of emptiness. But definitely, I feel like there's that it's that for us as African Americans. So that's it's a blessing that you have that. Yeah, it and you know, it not it didn't feel well. I won't say it didn't feel like a blessing. It felt weird as a kid to have that. Um, you know, my last name is Kwachi, so one who restores balance and order. You know, like kids wouldn't make fun of that name, and so I told my mom I would come home from school and be like, I want more like I want because her last name was more I want that last name and she's like mm-hmm. no, that's not who you know like yes that's a part of your lineage but no like you are your father's child and you, you gonna go in this name 
there's no changing that. Um, and so there were little things I remember. And so I'm writing about this too, mm-hmm. which is why it's very fresh in my mind. Um, mm-hmm. I'm writing an autoethnography right now that will hopefully be done in the spring, that will be done in the spring, you know, hopefully. Um, about, and so it's called Cimarron, and I think you can see like over in the corner, I got mm-hmm. So that's the street that I grew up on in LA and Cimarron means wild and untamed, but it's also mm-hmm. like a Spanish word for people that ran away. Um, for, I didn't know that. I knew the horse, there's a movie, Cimarron, about the yeah. wild horse, right? Yep. <laughs> uh, but it's the name that the Spanish gave for, particularly in Florida, um, for enslaved folks that ran away. And when mm-hmm. I, also in South America, it was widely used. And so, you know, growing up, I, I lived on Cimarron and so these wild and untamed folks. So in my family show up and on both sides, I'm writing about them. And it's, it's, that's the reason why it's so present in my mind about like this negotiation that I felt like I had to do. I don't think I do it at all anymore. I'm grown grown now, so I don't do it mm-hmm. at all anymore. But as a kid, it didn't necessarily feel, feel like a blessing. It felt like a lot of work as a kid. Like this going between, because it, I felt like the peacemaker oftentimes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Where folks felt like there are these disconnections between things. I saw like the bridges between both cultures. So I'm mm-hmm. like, oh, no, this makes, which made it easy for me to move in and out of Ghanaian mm-hmm. culture and African American mm-hmm. culture. Yeah. I heard that. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting because I feel like what happens a lot of times and I think you know what parents do the best that they can the best they know how to do but often especially if you're one parent like and I don't know if your father was in your life but like or how present he was but like um like I think parents aren't always intentional about helping kids whatever the thing is right so yours is like being bicultural but like whatever the thing is like dealing with weight dealing with tall whatever the thing is I think adults aren't always uh good at or intentional about helping the young person navigate that and building self-esteem through that you know what I mean at all I think you know for my so I get a lot of well I did I don't get again I feel like now I'm grown up and just tell people and read people for film. But as as a younger person, right? As a younger person, it was like, oh, you don't speak tree, right? Um, and my and I would go, be like, yeah, go talk to my dad about that. And so I remember coming home to him like crying, like, why didn't you teach me tree? And he was like, your mother didn't speak tree. Who else was I, you know? He was like, LA at the time wasn't, there wasn't a whole bunch of Ghanaians at the time. Like now, you know, there's a bunch of Ghanaians, Nigerians, he was like the the people that he felt connected to in the diaspora were Jamaican folk, were Belizean folk, and so that's those are people that I spent time around. Those are you know when he and I would spend time together without my mom. He was like, but nobody else in the house speaks tree. He was like, and I want your mother to be able to communicate. So he was like, you know, if people got something to say, tell them to come see me. And they mm-hmm. talk about it. But like those little things, you know, I would cry about and be sad about, and so. And he was, I think in his mind, he was intentional about why, um, but I don't think he, like you said, like, I don't think they necessarily make it clear until something comes up and then they have mm-hmm. these conversations, yeah. And it's, and it's whatever it is, like, um, yeah. how do you, like, if, uh, I think it happens a lot with kids that, like, skip a grade, right? Like, mm-hmm. 
or um, I, you know, my parents sent me. I, I, I had the honor of going to this um, this arts school in San Diego when I was growing up. But I was in the fourth grade, and I went from a single classroom to like seven classes a day in the fourth grade. Right? Oh I was going to kids went to school with kids from fourth to twelfth grade. Nobody taught me how to like negotiate that. Right, right. Nobody helped me with my learning style. And then when you start, when you're not doing well academically or not what you're used to, because I was in one class, like then there's all this pressure and you should be doing better. But like, literally, there are all of these things. Right. <laughs> a fourth grader with high school students, like what all the things that high school students deal with and go through. And it's an art high school. So you know that there's all the things. It's all the things. But yeah, I just, so it's, it's whatever it is. I just don't think that parents... I don't think that they remember what it was like for them as a child. Yeah. Yep. And so I, and because of that, and you know, whatever, they have all the shit that they're doing, but I just don't think that they think about like, how do I help you help guide you through this? Right. Right. And my parents did. My mother came to California when she was 11, mm-hmm. had an accident, had the draw, um, remembers being teased, remember being, you know, remembers being talked about. Um, and my, my mom, is the oldest, was the oldest of six at the time, but is now the oldest of like 11. Um, And so grew up working poor and folks made fun of her. And so Mm -hmm. we have this conversation where I went from preschool through the fourth grade in an all black and Latinx, like private Christian school. Mm -hmm. Fifth grade, she moves me out to Brentwood. I had never gone to school with white kids. I had never had a white teacher. I had never, you know, like mm-hmm. the one white child that I played with was my godmother. And my godmother is German um, and, and was married to a black man, was married to my godfather. And so, mm-hmm. you know, it was like her goddaughter, her other godchild um, who spoke German, like, you know, so it wasn't like American white. It was, it was a thing. white person. Mm-hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. when I, you know, I get to fifth grade, and I'm in Brentwood, like Bel Air, Brentwood. So now you have, you have race and class. And class, right? I'm like, Mom, you did not tell me. Like, Mom, what is going on? And so my grandmother was the one who had to do that work. My grandma, mm-hmm. you know, my mom, because Arkansas at the time was so segregated, she they had just started to desegregate when my mom moved to California in Arkansas. So mm-hmm. she didn't go to white school with white children either. My grandmother was the one who was like, okay, let me push you up on game on how to negotiate with white folks. Mm-hmm. And even that, she was very scarred from her own experience of working with white. She, my grandmother, um, we when we went home last year, we went home to Arkansas last year, I saw the restaurant that she worked at she couldn't even, you know, this wasn't a restaurant that she could go back in and sit down as a customer. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. just all of the trauma that she had working for white people in Arkansas, she was like, okay, let me, let me tell you how to negotiate this. But my mom was like, what? I was like, mom. Because all she's probably seeing is how do I give you the best? Yes. That's what it was. How do I what? arm you the best? And I think about all something like I would never, I, if I had children, I would never um, move my child to a place where they are the only or one of few. I, I just think that that, like, yes, their skills and do, do you watch This Is Us? So I've watched, so I've skipped all of it and started watching this current season. So, what? 
I couldn't do it. So the story, I know the storyline very well. My partner watches, um, my, my homegirls watch. So they, they put me, they was like, okay, just cut to this part. So I'm watching this, yeah, which is, I guess the last season, is this the last season? I think they're, I don't know. I just started watching it. I just started binge watching it in like November or something. Um, and got caught up, but like, it, it, I think about like the situation of Randall and like, yes. you know, just how much they missed of what he was holding as yeah. a kid. And I think that that happens like all the time that we have to negotiate. And then adding being black, adding being female, adding being a big body individual, like yeah. all things, all the layers and, and parents just, and I, to be honest, I don't even know if they have this, the, the tools or the skill set to do it, but I just, I always think that like, that's a misstep that happens. Yeah, I'm writing about be, what it meant to be fat in an all black school mm-hmm. versus what it meant to be fat in a white school. Like it's a different kind of, it's a different thing. It's a different thing. There are different assumptions made about you. They're like all, I was like, oh, 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 this is what, oh. Like I had, there was an adjustment period where I was like, okay, let me, what, and it was a steep curve too. Of what are some of those things? So like, you know, I think for me, we could play the dozens at, with, with each other. Like we could clown, we could bag, we could talk about weight, but I could get mm-hmm. on your shoes or I could get mm-hmm. on you not depending on your work. Like, no, we're not even going to engage with talking about you because you're beneath us. Like, so that's one, right? Like you're invisible. Right. So I, I was like, Oh, okay. This is oh okay. Had to learn that. Like what it meant to be fat for them was not the same as what it meant to be fat um for us. Mm-hmm. And so I was looking at girls who were like wearing, they were like, yeah, I wear which would probably be like now a double zero. Um was their their goal. And they were wearing like a four. So that's that's too, a four is too big. Got it. Uh, I remember I used to do a lot of diversity work in LA, and I used to work with this uh, group called NCCJ, the National Conference for Community and Justice. Mm-hmm. And um, something that happened with Queen Latifah at like the Emmys or some something she was at, and they it was before she had lost a chunk of weight, and there was like a. there was like comments about like is she gonna lose the weight right like it it was like you know she's she had done some movie she was getting fame so she's getting fame but she's but her body is not reflecting right 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 and uh i remember one of the white ladies that uh worked with us saying you know the travesty she said the travesty is in white culture there's an, an an adage that says you can never be too rich or too thin and that's a part of their like cultural belief system and so what happens is then it permeates out and I didn't grow up in a I didn't grow up in um like a very uh enclosed like I grew up in San Diego until I was like 11 um so I was in a mixed environment right so white culture was uh, very strong around me and then when I moved to Pomona like um it was black and like brown, but it also was like the the like the the the, the whiteness was still there. Like it, it, you know what I mean. It wasn't like it wasn't like I was in the bay, <laughs> like I was in right. Right. right? Like it wasn't. Um, 
yeah, it was, it was real problematic. And, um, and my family and all of them like treated me like I was so big all the time. Like I felt like I was the size I am now, like my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was this constant pressure to lose weight, lose weight, lose. What are you eating? Why are you eating? Should you be eating that? Do you need to have all of that? Like, you know, and I just felt scrutinized by kids at school, at home, like everywhere, like uh, always having to think about no matter how healthy it was, no matter how healthy I was, no matter how active I was, it, it just didn't matter. It was always like nothing you are is okay because you're not thin. For me, my grandmother was the person that shielded me from that. So people mm-hmm. in my family would try it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and she would go to war for me. And she died. And so let me tell you like how I worked out. So I had to, in writing the book, I'm like going through the trauma as a kid. So my grandmother died when I was 11. That's also the year. Like she died shortly after I started going to the white school. So she was mm-hmm. sick. She had cancer. So she was sick um, and doing this like emotional labor with me, trying to get me to understand race. Um, But she was my shield. And when she died, it was like open season. So she died my first semester at that school. Um, She died Super Bowl Sunday of 1990. And so that was the, like, you know, like kids will come back, take their finals, and then that's the start the second semester. So she died and she, the shield from my family talking about my weight, like friends of the family talking about my weight, that was gone. And then the kids at school, it was like open season with it. So it was, you know, trying to figure all of that out. She was the saving buffer. And when she passed away, it was like, I didn't realize how incredibly painful that was on so many levels because she Mm -hmm. would, when I tell you she would go to war for me, Mm -hmm. like we would go to war. No gain weight, none. Wow. Did you gain more weight then? I did. Um, But I also, it was like, it was a horrible growth growth, growth spurt too, from 11 to like 12. So, Mm -hmm. you know, like filling out, getting boot. It was all of the things, like starting to grow breasts. They're not growing fast enough, but my belly's growing bigger than, like all of the things, right? So, you know, some of it a lot of my mother also comfort like she she was a binge and restrict so binge you know not a purger but definitely like forever overeating and then severely restricting and so I started to follow that behavior because that's what I saw in my house Mm -hmm. so of course like gain lose gain lose and I I was super active I was in dance that was also like I had a a dance teacher and my mom put me in dance I think because my grandma normally I would go and be with her after school mm-hmm. she wasn't there anymore so that was the thing that I could do after school and I would be in dance and my dance teacher was this little thin little white woman who um was from Romania and was like, we're not playing none of these games about y'all talking crap about your bodies. Can you do the things that I'm teaching you? Great, that's all I care about. Um, and so she was a saving grace for me, but yeah, it was, so I was active, but still like up, down, up, down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting. Like, I, <laughs> I remember like, um, 
one, I was always active, but um, also, so my mother, my mother would do, my mother was obsessed with food. My mother had stomach cancer and then, and then she was just obsessed with food. So she would not just buy like cookies. She would buy like Oreos and like Chips Ahoy and then like soft batch cookies and then like the flaky flags, <laughs> uh, the circus animal, you know what I mean? Like we had like cookies, we, we just have cookies. We have like uh, Twinkies and Ding Dongs, uh, like just all of the things, the Louisiana Crunch Cake, like all Intamins, like, like all the things, right? Um, several different kinds of ice cream, several different kinds of popsicles, like, and all the chips, all the food, but then you like, don't eat it. Right, right. I'm like, but why are you bring it in here? Is that not what we're supposed to do with it? What, what, why? Listen, one of my most painful memories, this nut put me on Jenny Craig, and you know, Jenny, I don't know if you've ever been, but Jenny Craig has these like little pre-made meals. Yeah. And then, our local pizza spot um, in Ontario at the time was called Double or Nothing Pizza. So if you order one, you got two pizzas, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. So they order pizza. So I'm on Jenny Craig. I'm like 12, 13. They ordered up, they ordered double or nothing. And so there's like at least four pizzas at our house, at least. And they're like slamming. And they're like, <laughs> my 12 or 13 year old Kylie, she have enough self-control to just eat your Jenny Craig. It, I didn't realize, um, I remember um, Oprah came too late for me in my life, but I was, think, I was in high school and um, I was watching an episode and she was saying they were in the show, they were like, um, that when you put a kid on a diet, the child on the diet, the whole family has to go on a diet, right? But that's not what happened in my family. They would be like, we're going to do, we're going to keep going because we're fine, but you have the problem. So you fix it. And then there was all of this shame and embarrassment and critique, excuse me, every time I didn't um, meet the goal that they wanted me to meet. Um, okay. You've talked about this a little bit, but tell me a little more, like, what's the story of your body? Oh, goodness. Um, I always go back to, and people laugh, I always go back to what I weighed as a baby. People think it's you know eight pounds 12 ounces my mom is always like you so she talks about my my body damaging her body she was like you destroyed me they split me from a hole she don't cuss but she, so she says this literally they split me from a hole to appetite to get your big head out so like you know like the calling of my body starts as me being too big mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. my coming in the world is too big mm-hmm. My head is too big, my body is too big, like mm-hmm. all the things, right? Um, and I always tell people when they ask, like I'm not one of those people that was ever like thin. I've been big all my life. I was a mm-hmm. big baby, I was a big uh, toddler, I was a big kid, big woman. Like it, it's never been um, where I've been small or what people would think of as small. So I've been smaller than I am now mm-hmm. than I am now, but so for me, my body is always be like coming out the womb being told I'm too much, right? Like being told literally when I, so I often ask students um, in my methods class, in my ethnography class, and we do a section on autoethnography to tell me about their birth stories and mm-hmm. the things that they learned. And so 
for me, my birth story was about me being too much. Mm -hmm. My mother's every time she's like, you just ruined me. So, <laughs> right, like just, so having that narrative and, and really trying to figure out how to be in a world that's marking you already. From Something. Like you just come in, like, I don't know shit about this. Like there's nothing, like just being who, um, similar, uh, it's interesting because you were saying that you were doing all this like healing and stuff through writing. So I wrote a, my one, th this podcast is named after my one woman show, Too Much Woman for This World. And it's about my life growing up that and like how I was able to develop self-esteem. And, and there, there were all the different things like I, you know, there was so much that I uncovered. And so writing it was healing, then performing it has been like every time I perform it, like I learn something new, I identify something, work out something um, new. But, um, but that's, I play with the idea of like enough versus too much. Yeah. And the word enough is like an ancient Sanskrit word. And it actually means like to, to, to um, a state of being, like it's just who you are. Like you don't have to do anything to achieve enough. But in this culture, we use it like it's like a destination, like it's something that you have to like arrive at. Right. Um, and that actually is like just not the case. Um, but I play with that a lot. And so it's interesting, like just coming into the world, like just being who you inherently are, magical, blessed goodness. <laughs> and it's a problem. Right, right. So really just trying to, for me, it's always been about can my body do what I need it to do, mm -hmm. right? Um, and, and not like not what other people need it to do, but can it do what I need it to do? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Can it breathe, mm -hmm. can it see, can it, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. um, can I feel like my sensory, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so for me as a kid, that was a way for me to kind of shut out the rest of the world and to be and dance really too so which is why when we were in synthesis together I was like yes because Kyrie she's gonna make us dance and I get to be in my body in a way that I don't get to be you know mm -hmm. normally I get to move and do things especially African dance which I grew up doing like this is I get to be present in ways that people will not allow me to be present and enjoy my body and so dance is, has been important um you know I love to be in the water whenever I can me too so definitely like Charlie and Maya like I get to be some you know any mm -hmm. anybody of water but I prefer the ocean but to be able to feel the waves like that kind of any moment where I'm able to be present in my body sex like whatever you know like these are moments you no know that's my favorite <laughs> where I get to be present in my body and so mm -hmm. for me that's been the the saving grace and mm -hmm. so it's really just shutting out everybody else's what I need to be what I should be how it should be what my body should do and just am I enjoying what my body can do and then you know the the aging process too has been interesting like because the things that I used to be able to do I can't do it quite as easy as I could before um and so not to like overshare, I'm going to have in like two or three weeks, two weeks, I'm having a hysterectomy, right? Oh, wow. um, I have horrible fibroids and versus having a myomectomy to, to remove the fibroids and keep my uterus. I was like, yeah, no, I don't want to have kids. Um, 
but just like write like what your body should be able to do and so I'm like now I have to go back to you know is it doing what I needed to do should it be doing should it be having a, a child you know all these conversations mm-hmm. I didn't want a kid and I didn't have one so it's now going to do something else so transitioning into different spaces with my body and so you know just going on the journey with it it's so interesting that you say that because um there are things like um like gray coochie hair <laughs> like my like gray in my eyebrows and I'm like yo like I don't even like I I'm 45 but I there's nothing about me that ever feels that age right, right. I don't identify as old in any way right. um and and it's it's interesting because my gray eyebrows that might bother me maybe a little more than my weight right <laughs> um but there are all these ways that like you like self-esteem and that journey that you're talking about with your body is like a continual thing yeah. and um and like having to go okay this is a new iteration of this body right how do we find ourselves how do we find our way into loving this iteration oh <laughs> there's something new okay let me do the work and, and, and figure out how to do this. And then it, it, so it's a continual process. And um, so I love that you say that. And it's not easy. Um, I think people think you get to a place and you arrive, but. No, this is for, you know, you, we got to live in these bodies. And so we have to go on this, be committed to going on this journey um, and allowing things to change. And I think what was, what has been helpful is watching my parents age um, and really having grace for them so my mother has cardiomyopathy um, and it, we found out it runs in the family. And so in particular, the women on my mother's side of the family. Mm-hmm. So um, my aunt, who is younger than my mom in terms of in line. So she was the second oldest. She passed away from cardiomyopathy. She had, she actually had a heart transplant. Um, oh, and wow. Her body started to reject it. And so she passed away. And so my mom having seen, she was, and she was my aunt's caretaker. So having seen her go through that made mm-hmm. the decision when she finally got diagnosed that she didn't want to do the transplant. And so my mom, it's watching her go through this journey in terms of her own body and what she can do with her heart function. Sometimes I'm like, right, this is a woman, my mother works, and she talked about this. She worked from the age of 14. That's all she knew was working so she retired um at around 60 she retired and she and then she got diagnosed so kind of all around the same time she my parents got a divorce she got diagnosed with cardiomyopathy and she retired all around the same time and she was like I'm watching my body break down and I you know having to see her struggle with what her body could not do Mm -hmm. anymore and but what her body could do and what the things that she now enjoyed mm-hmm. um, and having a lot of grace for her because mm. she she was adamant that she wasn't going to let this you know kind of defeat her and i'm watching her i'm like ma you you really need to rest and she would she's like no i'm going to keep going until i can't go anymore and she she fell a couple times she was in the house by herself um and I came home and had to help her off the floor so I'm like my you can't do this and so like really wanting her like you gotta you you have to get it in your head you can't do these things anymore Mm -hmm. 
and seeing the sadness that she felt because she couldn't do it anymore. And so I was like, okay, I got to ease off because we would, I would get into it. Like we need to get you a life alert bracelet and do it. Like really go hard on her. And I was like, I need to ease up off her because I can't imagine living in my body for 60 years and then it can't do what I love to do or can't do the things that I normally do for the duration that I would normally do them. So having that grace with her and then my father had um, a quadruple bypass. And so watching him recover from that, Mm -hmm. like you can't put on a shirt and he's getting frustrated because he can't, I'm like, relax he was like no this is stupid and I was like right he's mourning this loss so for you know and as you age it's also about for at least for my parents not wanting people to tell you what to do so it's like the roles have reversed now um once so, a man and twice a child yes right so they they are really struggling and so I was mm-hmm. like I gotta have some grace and so I was like okay well then if you can give them grace then you need to start giving yourself grace about how you are navigating this journey in your own body. Facts. Uh, you know, I don't know if you know this, but um, in 2013, I broke my knee. So mm-hmm. I broke my knee. And I remember, um, like, I couldn't walk for three months. Um, I couldn't wait for, wait there for three months. I spent a month just in the, in the hospital, right? Um and I'm like a, a goer, like I'm an Aries, like I, I am a mover, like I do, like that is what I do, right? Like that is, that is my, that would be my word, do. Um, and I, I remember going to rehab um, after, after I got, was able to wait, wait bear and they put me on a bicycle and I could not ride that bike. Not only could I not ride it, but it was like excruciating pain because my leg had been straight for three months. Um, And I just broke down crying on that bike because it's a bike. I probably have been riding a bike since I was like five or six. Mm -hmm. And and I, I, like, (laughs) that was like one of the hardest things, hardest things. And I've realized recently that I have a lot of, um, I have a lot of trauma uh, that I have to work through because I broke one knee and then I tore the men- meniscus in the other one. Mm-hmm. So for the last seven years, I have not been able to be in my body. I'm any like people who know me be- before seven years ago know me as a dancer, right? Like, like always dancing. Like I get to the club, ain't nobody on the dance floor. I step down. Moment I get in the door, I'm ready to go until I leave, right? And everybody knows that. And I just don't have access to my body in that same way right now. And it is, and it is, it is, it has been very hard um, to deal with. Like when that is something when, like, so when you're talking about your mother, like, like it's a part of her identity, like that's a part of my identity and to have to, to not, one of the things that's beautiful about the water is that you could do whatever in the water. Yes. That is one, like one of my favorite things about the water. I actually need to spend more time in it, but um, is that I like the water doesn't care that I broke my knee or that my meniscus is torn. I can dance in the water. I can be like with all those things. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, these bodies of ours. Yes. So why why work with? Um, thank you for sharing all of that. Mm-hmm. Why black girls? Why is that work important? You know, I've 
I had to think about how I've worked with kids since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Likewise, we had a lot in common. <laughs> yes. So like my mom, you know, my mom would sign me up for vacation Bible school so that she, we could have daycare and I would, you know, be in charge of the little, little kids or babysitting my cousins. Um, mm -hmm. And so for me in my own family, I saw the ways in which girls were hyper, hyper visible and invisible at the same time, watch, mm -hmm. um, had to and so it's funny because I didn't realize it until and there's such a huge age gap so there's I'm I'm an only child but me I have a cousin that's a year older than me and one that's a year younger and for on my mom's side of the family we were the only generation kind of for a long long time we were the only grandchildren for a long long time there's mm -hmm. not another grandchild I think until like nine years and then she even she was a girl Mm -hmm. then like five more years then we have boys in our family and so I just remember the ways in which we were policed um had to do do things and when these boys in our family come along they're not policed in the same way the expectations are different and so I just knew that there was one I've always felt that there was something special about being a girl um mm -hmm particularly because, and I think, and not just on some, like, it's great to be a girl, but the women in my family, on my mom's side in particular, have what we would call, like, sight, so we, you know, dreams, um, permissions, like, that was our gift, and so, and the men in our family did not have that, and so for me, it was important, like, that was special growing up, um, mm -hmm. but just so watching my own family, how girls were treated, Mm -hmm. like, like, do all this labor in our family but then don't have any of kind of the space to just enjoy our own labor to enjoy our own privacy and our own sanctity I mean there are moments where we carved out for ourselves and those moments are the things that I cherish so that's a part of it uh, I worked for the city of Los Angeles at an all-girls camp and similarly the girls will come in with same the same kinds of stories about growing up and it and that was something that ran across class so I would see rich girls talking about what it meant to be a girl. and race yeah absolutely mm -hmm. religion too right mm -hmm. like Christian um mm -hmm. Muslim Jewish like just and and so I was like okay I need to really pay attention to these amazing stories and it they those experiences always bring me back to myself in ways that I enjoy um and so you know, I am committed to being able to help tell those stories about girls, about women, about them. I think the thing that, um, like you, I've worked with young people since I was a young person. Um, I think I started like after babysitting, I think I started mentoring when I was like 16 at Simba's, at Simba's. Um, and then I've worked with, in a slew of situations, with um, young people and subsequently have done a lot of girl girls work um, and I think the thing that is is unique because I think all that's all that shit is connected right across gender and all of that I mean not gender but uh, class and um, race and all of that but I think the thing that is unique for black girls is the way that 
black girls are asexualized. Yes. If they're sexualized and they may to be responsible for people's sexualization of them, but also the way black girls are made to be responsible for black boys. Oh, absolutely. Whether it's in the house, whether it's in school, like whatever it is, even if they're older. Um, yeah, absolutely. You have to help him get his grades like, in, in all the ways, even to the point where sadly, like when we're violated, then part of the, because the system is so fucked up and, and anti-black male, even when black women and girls are violated by black men and boys, we, we go into protecting them instead of ourselves. And that, I mean, for me, I saw that rampantly as a kid in terms of domestic violence, in terms of sexual assault, sexual violence. Like I saw the protection for the perpetrator, <laughs> the person. And then the victim was then expected to, to also, like you said, take care of the person that violated. I mean, how many, how many of us have people who've been violated in our families and the person who violated them is in the family and it's just allowed to be everything like everything is everything you know me and my mom go at it forever about my grandfather my her her father my grandfather um because my grandfather was abusive and I'm like I would I remember so I'm writing about this. So we went down to Arkansas for my my um, youngest aunt's wedding, mm-hmm. and I didn't know my grandfather. My grand my grandparents divorced. Well, they were separated mm-hmm. before I was born, um, and my grandfather was back and forth between Arkansas and California. And so at this time for her wedding, they were he was in he had been in Arkansas for some years, and I didn't like. Kairisha, you couldn't tell me, I didn't know who this man was. For the longest, I called him Uncle Bo because that's what my cousins, um, my great aunt's kids called him because I didn't know that he was my grandfather, right? Mm -hmm. So um, when we went down there, I had heard them whispering about my grandfather and what he had done to my grandmother, what he had done to my aunts. And I told my grandma, he came to the house the night before my aunt's wedding and he wanted to see my grandmother. Mm-hmm. And I told them, they were like, go in there and get your grandma. Tell them, you know, tell her that Bo wants to see her. And so I went in there and I had heard enough stories about him being abusive. Um, and I told, I said, Granny, I will kill him if you need me to. And I was like picking out her Jerry curl, like, and she stopped and looked at me and she was like, I don't need you to do that, but thank you. Um, because I, I mean, just, I just watched how all like we it was it wasn't something that people didn't know like everybody knew not only to my grandmother to the woman that he married after her like everybody knew but when he came in the room everybody wanted to be in his face everybody wanted to get him a plate and I was like oh hell no this this stops today like Mm -hmm. we we don't have to do this because he has not been held accountable he never said sorry he thinks that he can do these things, like run these spaces. It's just like, like air. Yeah. And so I remember nine years old, I was like, I'll kill him today if you need me to. And she just was like, you don't have to do that, but thank you. But I remember, right, for me, 
And still to this day, I'm like, y'all bringing this Negro plates? And he still ain't, he ain't apologize. He beat my grandmother with a two by four Kairishi. These are my mama's memories as a girl, right? Crack my own right? Like these, were people still bringing him plates? Never said sorry. He's sad. He don't have, he's right there in LA. Sad that people don't come visit him. It's like, I wonder why. And no repentance. <laughs> no repentance, none. But still can get his kids and his girl children in particular. Good. Because they're always probably seeking that that love. That, that, and that's what I told that. him. I was mm -hmm. like, you can, I said, you can do that because that's your father and you got to figure out that relationship. I don't have to do that. Facts. And I'm not going to. But you know what, what you're bringing up for me is, um, I always say this, um, that our mothers, like our grandmother's sacrifice so that our mothers could be the women who they were and our mother's sacrifice so that we could be the, like the fire, the, I uh, fuck that, yeah. like all of that that you have, <laughs> yeah. it, 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 it's because of all of the things that they swallowed, right? Like the, yeah. all the, the ways that they made space or all those sacrifices so that me and you could be like, <laughs> not now. Yeah. Not never, never, <laughs> ever, never. And she, you know, and she told me as much, right? Like, it's it's interesting because she's like, you don't, you're not gonna have children, so you don't have to, you're not gonna have to make negotiations that I, mm -hmm. I had to make. Um, but she, I think we finally got to a, a space of mutual respect. Like, okay, you and right. your mother. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And you know. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, I mean, my, we have all kind of all kind of other shit. I in my one woman show, I, I have a poem um, called uh, I don't know what the, what's that piece called. It's like my last piece. Um, but I talk about I wanted to so I I wanted to contextualize um, all of the things that that you see hear me talk about that I had to deal with. That it wasn't just because my family was fucked up, like. Um, it, it's because of all of the different things that we've had to deal with from slavery, Jim Crow, sharecropping, all of the, you know, like these, the, the brokenness in our families was made, yeah. right? Um, and so I wanted, so it, I, I, at the end of the show, I, I, I talk about like who I come from and so that people understand that, that this is what, this is what has led to this moment, right? And my family, I think, has, I say we have issues with addictions to food, alcohol, and drugs, right? Um, and whoever it, uh, you can see it the most with is who's persecuted. But it's not because the rest of the family doesn't have the issue, right? It's because <laughs> you're, 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 I, in it, I say something like, um, my body tells the truth. And Black, you know, Black folks, like, well, we don't air our dirty laundry out in public like that, right? So it's like that thing, like whoever is like the, uh, knocked down drunk like that they're a problem but not because everybody in the family ain't alcoholics they're just like functional alcoholics right. so it's cool but right. you over there you're telling our business yeah. everybody got weight issues food issues and shit but you your body is telling on us but anyways in there's a part in it when I say um like mothers um I say something like Mothers treating girls like old beat up shoes and boys, boys who are loved most of all, but never grow into men. And I, it's, it's that thing. It's like, um, like you, they need you. They need you, right? Like girls are going to take care of you differently, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
they're expected to. I think there's something about how we are wired. Working with kids, I can tell you some of that is na nature and some of it is nurture. Girls, if I had a project and I needed help, the girls were gonna meet me at, you know, check in with me. They were gonna text me and say, hey, Ms. K, you still need us, da, da, da. All right, I'm gonna get such and such and such to come. Like they're managing me, right? There's very little I have to do. Yeah. <laughs> the boys, <laughs> I have to go get them. I have to be like, okay, open up the table put this on the table, do this. Like, it's just very different, right? And some of that is nature and some of that is nurture. And so I think they need us differently because they know that we're going to hold them. But the boys are always secretly the favorite, I think. Yeah. At least in my family. Absolutely. Absolutely. At least in my family. Yeah. What, um, I, two, my two last questions for you. One, I want to know what it would your vision for like black girls be like if you could like create a program or do something to like drastically impact the lives of black girls what would that be and then the last question would be uh what advice would you give to your to your younger self maybe um so i've already been working in the program that i feel like is what i want black girls to have mm -hmm. so, um in grad school, I was fortunate enough to help co-organize with um, Ruth Nicole Brown. And so she is a professor, um, she's the chair at Michigan State in African-American studies. But her, her vision was an organization called Saving Our Lives, Hear Our Truth, mm -hmm. and Black Girls. And it came out of her own research um, of folks trying to empower like girls empowerment like all of the rhetoric of like the early 2000s of girls empowerment mm -hmm. and um how black girls were programmed in a particular way and so mm -hmm. she's like look we're going to create a program that centers black girls mm -hmm. so that means we are not going to discipline their bodies we're not going to tell them to sit down we're not going to tell them to shut up we're not going to you know mm -hmm. we're going to go wherever they take us so if they mm -hmm. want to you know, the only rule is that we had to use our creativity. That was it. And so we was in there making up songs. We were in there making up poems. We were in there performing. We were doing mm -hmm. photo voice. We were doing art. So I I take So Hot with me. Um, and So Hot also feels similar to Symbolsis, like separation mm -hmm. feels like mm -hmm. that. Um, and so I take that, that is the dream is that they lead us to wherever they need to go, whatever mm -hmm. they need. And we, we provide that space. We don't believe, mm -hmm. we don't tell them, you know, we guide them, but we don't tell them no. We believe mm -hmm. them. they tell us their stories, mm -hmm. hold that to be the truth. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's the kind of space that I continue to want to create. That's the kind of space that I try and create in my classroom with my students. Um, Whenever I'm doing work, I take so hot wherever I go. So I'm already, I've already done it. I continue to try and do it in communities everywhere that I go. So I've done it in Lexington. Um, COVID hit right before I was about to be able to do it here in Atlanta. Um, so anything where I can center Black girls' creativity and and hold that and and guide. I mean, I think that Black girls have the keys to the kingdom. Like if anybody is gonna get us free, it's gonna be them. Yes, you listen with all that spirit. <laughs> right. Like they, you know, they know so much and mm -hmm. we just don't hear them. And so anywhere where I can make space for us to hear black girls tell the truth, then I'm I'm about it. 
Mm -hmm. I heard that. Uh, I was going to tell you real quick. Um, I, you know, I used to run this youth center at, um, I used to work at McClyman's, which is like the blackest high school in Oakland. It's the, mm -hmm. it's a, um, the, uh, I can't think of what it's called. The traditional high school that has like the highest percentage of black youth um, in Oakland. It's the Panther High School. Like Huey and Bobby saw Malcolm X speak there, right? Like it's black West Oakland. And um, in my youth center, like black girls want to dance. They want to twerk. And so I would, we had a dance studio and I would let them go in there and they put a picture, you know, a poster on the, the window so nobody could see in. No boys could be in the room. And I would let them go and dance. And I would receive so much. I tell people this now and I have people I know who still critique me for letting them. And I'm like, why can't black, wh what is the problem with them twerking? Like if they were in rites of passage, they would be acting out sexuality and learning things and exploring about all these different things. Like. Why can't in the safe environment where nobody is judging you? Because see, if they do that with boys, it, it, there's cost to that, right? Like it's not, it's not a safe environment. It becomes this whole other thing. So why can't they? And it's something that's in them. Like they should be able to do it without in a space where it's not a cost. And I would do it all. The, I would let them, it's after school. They're done with their homework. Everything. You want to go in there and twerk? It's all girls. Have fun. Please. People have Please. so many. <laughs> I'm telling you, they have I never understand. I don't understand so many problems with them being present in their bodies. And so, and what I would tell people that would critique, and sometimes I got it from other Black women. And I'm like, look, they're not doing it. Like, so you said, like, they put up papers so nobody can see it. They're doing this for themselves. Yes. Like, how many things I, I have to ask some adults, like, how many things do you get to do for yourself in a day? Facts that you get to enjoy in your own body. Mm -hmm. Leave these kids alone. Mm -hmm. Like you are the problem, not, not their bodies, not what they're doing. They are enjoying themselves. How mm -hmm. many things do you do for yourself that you enjoy? Mm -hmm. And I go and I twerk with them a little bit and then I go, oh. oh my God, this guy. And I'm like, I twerk. Like why can't, why can't they see like, I, you know, some of it is like intergenerational stuff that we we are disconnected from, but like we are teaching them how to be women. We're teaching them how to have joy. We're teaching them how to own their bodies and be responsible and how to do this in a way that's for me. Like it's not, I'm not centering any man's pleasure. It's not about anybody else. It's just me expressing myself and having fun. Like, why can't I show them that? Right. <sighs> Always managing us. I think that's the thing is that Black Black girls and women in a way that, you know, there are other groups, but black girls and women just, our bodies are not our, our own. It's their, their public domain. Yep. And everybody has something to say about it. Similar yeah. to being fat. Similar to yep. being fat is everybody else has, can they can weigh on it. They want to touch you. They can do whatever they want to do. And you just are not your own. And that's, that's what I whenever I'm with black girls, I want them to have whatever they want for themselves. That's their own, like, mm -hmm. whatever it is, because exactly what you said, it's open season mm -hmm. in people's minds. Anyway, mm -hmm. open mm -hmm. season, right. They don't belong. So I want to remind them. So remind them that they belong to them. You mm -hmm. belong to you. You don't belong mm -hmm. to anybody else. You Nobody else. Yeah. You belong to you. I think that's what I would probably tell my younger self too is that you belong to yourself mm -hmm. as much as um as much as you feel like you have to do things 
to please people. Mm-hmm. I was definitely a people pleaser as a kid and still mm-hmm. like trying to break myself sometimes from some of these habits. Um, you belong to you. Mm-hmm. That's it. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that you don't value connection. That doesn't mean that you aren't connected to other people. That means that you have to answer to yourself at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. No, that's big facts. Yeah. Big facts. I love it. This has been so beautiful. We got to do this again. Yes. I'll bring you back after after your book is out. Yes. I'm supposed yes. to have a book out in the spring too, so we will see. Yes. <laughs> I'm working yes. on it. Yes. Um, tell the people how they can find you. I am on Twitter. So my Twitter is private because I'm petty. Um, (laughs) but my Twitter is Jules daughter. Um, and I'm on Instagram at C J K W A K Y E C J Kwachi. It's also private. Again, I'm petty in most of the places. And by petty, I mean, like I'm calling out Mm -hmm. capitalism. I'm calling out racism. Mm -hmm. Like all of the clownery. You're uncensored. Yeah, I'm uncensored. And so, you know, if my tweets ever get leaked leaked to the public, I'm like, I know most of these people for real in real life. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, um, CJ Kwachi on um, Instagram and Jules Daughter on Twitter. I love it. It has been beautiful. I miss you. I got to come to Atlanta. I got a kind of blue person in Atlanta. So I'm going to hit you up when I come. Okay. I'm trying to get back home, actually. I'm trying to get. Yeah, I moved to Houston. You're moving to Houston? I am in Houston. I moved to Houston. Oh, snap. I did not know that. How are you mm-hmm. liking Houston? I love it. Yeah. I love it. I, so, of Texas, I've been in Austin. Um, yeah, Austin's all right. I've been in San, I have family in San Antonio, but I love Houston. It reminds me of LA in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I say that Houston is like if Oakland and New Orleans had a baby, it would be Houston. Yes. That's what he's Yes, that is a good yes. That is that is absolutely correct. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So I'm gonna bring you back. All right. Yes. This has been beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing your too muchness with us. Thank you. I'm about to log. Let me stop then.